welcome to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast. No, it's not. No, we're not. <laughs> Shit, this is going to be uh, a little confusing. What's this going on? This is going on to Blue Ball Skeptics, isn't it? Oh. Alright. Hello, and welcome to the Blue Ball Skeptics. We've got our two blue balls. Uh, Damien and I, I'm Chaz Stewart, Damien and I are going to be interviewing Caleb Lack. Is that Dr. Caleb Lack? Dr. Caleb Lack. The guy who wrote that book about psychology on Australia? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And a lot of things, so don't don't try and pin us down. Oh. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Okay. Yeah. So why is it we're not the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast anymore? Well, it's too constricting. We want to talk about uh, subjects that fall out of the purview of atheism. We want to talk about all sorts of skeptic topics. So We'd like to get your input on that, Caleb. What What is the difference between atheism as a movement and skepticism as a movement? Well, for me, when I think about the two, uh, what I think about is atheism is defined by what you don't believe in, uh, a god or gods, and skepticism is defined by what you do believe in. So I believe in rationality, I believe in evidence, I believe in uh, a certain way of examining the world. And so I think one has a very kind of positive connotation in many ways, and one has a negative connotation, although, of course, there's a large amount of overlap between the two. Yes, but not as much as I would like. I would like to see. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would like to see our atheist group, which is huge and populous, doing more skeptical stuff, more skeptical activism, uh, which we haven't been doing. Not so much. Not so much. We do yeah. have a skeptics in the pub group now. We do, which is awesome, though. Columbus Skeptic Society uh, meets on a monthly basis now, so that's fantastic. And last week, you uh, packed the house with your with your talk. What was that talk about over again? That talk was on uh, sharpening and leveling. So, in other words, how we communicate and the way that we tell good stories uh, often leads us to tell less accurate stories. So, when you're hearing something that's really enjoyable, a lot of times it's been what we call sharpened and leveled. And what that means is you're emphasizing certain points and you're de-emphasizing other points. Uh, and a lot of times that makes the stories better to hear more interesting, more concise, but at the same time it makes them uh, less accurate generally. Because you're leaving lots of details out. Okay, so what's the point of doing skepticism? Well, for me, the point of doing skepticism is seeing the world how it is. Um, Not seeing it necessarily as how I, with all of my flaws and cognitive biases and particular desires, want it to be. And I think that's, that's a really tough thing for a lot of people to embrace, um, which makes sense because we are naturally inclined to want to believe what it is that we want to believe rather than what we ought to believe uh, or what reality actually tells us. And so it's really hard a lot of times for, I think, people to make a shift into skepticism uh, because it's not natural. Uh, Ray Hyman has said numerous times over the year, a famous psychologist and skeptic, uh, he has said a lot of times that, you know, we're the mutants. You know, we're, we're the oddballs right. in the human race. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of us who embrace skepticism, those of us who want to look at evidence and reason rather than anecdote and, and belief, uh, you know, we're, we're the really, we're the oddballs, even though we kind of tend to think, oh, these other people are being deluded. We're the ones who are actually really different. Have you ever heard of the evolutionary argument against naturalism? Yes. The, the idea is that we're not necessarily evolved to be rational. 
and they, obviously they take the argument to a weird place, but I'm kind, yeah. of, I'm kind of with planting on the premise. Yes, we're not evolved to be rational. We're evolved to be as rational as we needed to be in the era of evolutionary adaptiveness. Yeah, it's kind of a weird concession he was making in that argument. Okay. <laughs> yes, we, were, we, we were evolved with limited rationality. Yes, Alvin Plantinga, you're right about that. Yeah. The answer is not Jesus. The answer is skepticism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't need skepticism on a day-to-day basis in many aspects of uh, our history. We do now, <laughs> but we haven't for the vast majority of our history because it's not been that important. You know, we couldn't impact uh, the world and its entire uh, weather pattern in the past. But now we can. Now we can. You know, we can't blow up a continent in the past. Now we can. Wait, which one are you hoping to blow up? Uh, well, I don't really like most of them. Be honest, <laughs> that was a cop out. Sort of general, so. <laughs> general sort of vague misanthropy directed at all the sort of, sort of the, the mutually assured destruction of all continents. <laughs> uh, we can all live. I say we like start Kevin with the polar Poster. ice cap. I know it's not a continent, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll take that out, we'll... and that would be easy to take out. I mean, it's just ice and penguins. <laughs> yeah. So. And who really loves penguins anyway? I actually don't even have penguins. No, in the they polar don't. Well, <laughs> penguins. Damn. It's actually a Larson. We're gonna get comic. nasty emails about that one. Oh. <laughs> it's actually a Larson comic where uh, there's a polar bear acting like a penguin, and then some guy wrote to him and said they don't they're not the same. Everybody, everybody wrote to him different different part, different poles. Coming there, from a, as a psychologist, coming from a, a, what is um, what is a good scenario in which uh, like a typical scenario of a human brain like, going through its day that skepticism is not helpful. Like, what? what is, like, say, I know that there are certain takes that we ignore to help us out. Like, we, when we're looking at something, we ignore a lot in the periphery so that we can just function. Is that is that something that you see in psychology? Yeah, let me, let me give you a better example, which is how often in your day-to-day life do you interact with a group, a group of people? Twice. Twice for day. Yeah. Uh, he, he hates both of them. <laughs> you know, quite a bit. Most of us interact with other people all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of times on a day-to-day basis, we are interacting with uh, people that are our superiors, for example, at work, right? Mm-hmm. And so they tell us something is, is true. Hey, you know, we got an order for this end. I need you to do that. Right. And you don't go... Uh, did we? I'm going to need to see everything. I'm going to talk to the person that said they had this order because uh, I don't believe you. I'm calling bullshit on this. Mm-hmm. And instead, we just go, okay, that sounds great. So in many of our daily interactions, skepticism uh, would really slow us down <laughs> yeah. and, in all honesty, piss a lot of people off. Right? So making an assumption can help you get to the day a little easier. Much easier. Right. Uh, in, in many types of, of interactions with other people. And we, we have those sort of heuristics, those rules that we follow. You know, um, if my wife tells me something, then I generally think it's probably accurate uh, <laughs> for yeah. some of us. Um, but if I were to skeptically sort of examine everything that everyone says to me every day, I'm not going to be able to get a whole lot done. Uh-huh. And so skepticism, I think, you know, naturally is, is not a very useful tool in day-to-day interactions. 
unless you apply certain rules, like be skeptical of things that seem extraordinary, right? Uh, be skeptical of things that seem you know much too far out of the ordinary to be likely. But if that's my boss telling me that he needs me to do this because of something else happening, that's, a, that's an ordinary event, so I'll just do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, in a large part of our history, we've had this sort of social hierarchy where we, you know, we, we're not necessarily questioning those around us, right? We're not necessarily questioning all the time those people who are above us in a hierarchy telling us what to do because it's going to greatly, greatly slow things down. So that's maybe why being skeptical is the oddball. Because for so many generations of humans, it was not advantageous to be such a skeptically minded person. Well, or I, w- I would say not even not necessarily not advantageous, but not encouraged. Okay, yeah. And fine. so what happens is, you know, I express dissent and skepticism, and about uh, the god that this particular priest has told me <laughs> that I need to sacrifice to. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I get smacked down, right? Everyone else around me is like, what are you doing? You know, why are you arguing with me? Right. And then I get ostracized from my group, and bad things happen. I die of dysentery, and you know, things like that. I played that video game. <laughs> you have died of dysentery. <laughs> um, I want you to connect to your own secured network if I can. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. So I can get my copy of your book out. So can we talk about your book? Sure. Book? Sure. Talk about whatever you'd like. Okay. So, Psychology Gone Astray. It's a book about, I would say, the very early days of psychology, and particularly, there's a lot of psychometrics in there, a lot of measurement, a lot of attempted measurement of psychology. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're uh, really focusing on about 1895 to 1930 uh, in the book in terms of what we're really looking at in terms with research that we're reprinting. Mm-hmm. So, Basically so, just trashing all the social sciences when they were trying to form. Well, not just, <laughs> not just the social sciences, because my, my own Carl Pearson is in there. That's true. Looking like a eugenics <laughs> madman uh, throughout the beginning of the book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting uh, to go through and look at, you know, who are these, these giants in the field? So uh, people like Galton, Pearson, Brigham, and uh, Yerkes, you know, these people who are in a large number of our textbooks, stats textbooks, general textbooks, history textbooks, uh, and they talk about, oh, here's the great things that they did. Um, one of the reasons that we wrote this book, Psychology Gone Astray, is because there's a whole other side of things that are not talked about in these books, mm-hmm. and that are completely ignored in introductory text and in many history books, and that is... Well, people were doing great things. You know, Pearson was developing a number of statistical tests, which is fantastic. Uh, we use today. of statistics. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To this and day, we're using a bunch of We're history. doing his stuff, and we call things like a correlation coefficient after him. Uh-huh. And Not to mention that's all the fantastic. testing. That's right, that's yeah. We're setting up a lot of that stuff. But at the same time, he's also uh, contributing to eugenics and contributing to these ideas about scientific uh, racism, scientific sexism, uh, and then the policies, the social policies that follow from that. All right, and, so and that's what's so bad about eugenics? What's so bad no, about no, eugenics? No, no. Okay, yeah, I'm yeah. going to take like, the, Good the totally skeptical <laughs> view here. Like, let's suppose that there's some genes that will cause people to grow up uh, less happy, less productive. They, let's just let's say there's a gene for like just suffering. You just suffer a lot more than others. <laughs> suffering gene. Yeah. Okay. Let's try. Could we should we try to not the suffrage. Out? 
Gee, no, no. Suffering. <laughs> no, so yeah. everyone should have universal suffrage. Okay. But, like, suppose there's some gene that is, like, makes you normal in every other way except that you hurt more. Should you try to select that out? So, just social. That is, is the, the one of the arguments of more of today's sort of eugenics, right? Uh, which we call other things today instead of eugenics because eugenics has a very bad name to it. Genetic counseling. That's right, genetic counseling. <laughs> and, that sounds so much better. Things like that. So a new way to make an omelet. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, with many <laughs> broken eggs. Uh, so the original sort of uh, ideas of eugenics came around because what you had is you had these upper class white male scientists who were saying... <laughs> There's only one of those at this table. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. There's only one of them. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to point fingers. <laughs> but he is. It's at me. Um, so you have this very specific kind of person in Victorian England uh, who is advocating that the upper classes need to breed more and the lower classes need to breed less. This is what I keep telling the liberals. That's right. <laughs> You're so smart. You, need to you breed should more. be breeding more. That's right. <laughs> Why aren't you breeding more? I actually did do a talk on that. <laughs> I think Damien is, actually. Yeah. I can tell. So. Uh, and it, it didn't have anything to do with specific kinds of diseases necessarily uh, up front. Now, it developed into that. But it was much more of a class issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and because it was a class issue, it was very much a race issue. So <laughs> you didn't have a, a whole lot of minority populations who were in the upper class. And so what you have is people making arguments that, well, if we have fewer in the lower class, then there'll be less suffering. Uh, there'll be less poverty. There'll be less uh, insanity. There'll be less criminalism and feeble-mindedness. Mm -hmm. And so you have these these terms that are kind of thrown about that you look at them and you're like, oh yeah, I don't want to be insane and feeble-minded. Uh, but it turns out you don't know if you want to be that way or not because you, you may not be that way. And so I think one of the and major... If you are feeble-minded, you really don't know. Well, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. So... Uh, so I think you know one of the major arguments against this kind of a you know we should breed this or breed that out kind of uh, idea is that you know first you know who are we to make that decision for someone else you know I don't have that I don't know necessarily what that feels like I don't know if that person would rather be dead or not uh, not exist versus have a life. And it turns out a lot of times if you ask people who have terrible illnesses and diseases, would you rather not exist than exist? You hear, are you insane? Of course I would rather exist than not exist. Now, you have certain people have, you know, specific kinds of uh, fatal illnesses or very severe mental disorders that will sometimes do things like obviously commit suicide or want to do uh, assisted, you know, death kinds of things. Uh, but that's very different from just, you know, would you rather not exist at all? How about if you ask them, would you rather pass on your genes or not? Would you rather pass on all of your genes except for that one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we can pick it out. Okay. So well, we know this gene. Eventually okay. we're going to get to the point where we can pick it out, and then right. eugenics will become a much more live question. Than <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, but we already see it today. You know, you see it with prenatal testing for certain diseases, uh, and you've got groups very strongly advocating that, you know, we need, need everyone of this certain kind of demographic to be prenatally tested for, let's say, Down syndrome. 
And you have them making, you know, arguments that look at this much suffering that's involved. Look at at this much um, amount of money and time that's spent uh, when you could be spending it with a child who doesn't have Downs. And you could just try again. And you have Downs uh, groups who are composed of parents and persons with Downs and support groups who argue very strongly against that and they say who are you to make that decision right i know why you picked this uh, well, I mean, example if it's if it's the, <laughs> if it's the mom making that decision then i mean we already have in our culture the idea that the mom gets to decide whether to carry a gestation to full term or not that's like a norm in our society if you're if you're a mother and you're in the first trimester you get to decide whether or not you're carrying out with this so who are you to decide you're the goddamn mom and you don't have to carry a gestation to full term if you don't want to right isn't that our norm in our society well, so, so this is a little bit different of an argument, which is, should we have things like mandatory prenatal screenings oh, okay. yeah. that would say, I need to tell you, your child has a X percentage chance of having Downs when they come out, as opposed to uh, just, do you want to carry this child to term or not? I'm not in favor of, of mandatory screenings, obviously, but... I mean, as, far, about, as far as elective but, screenings, but as far as people who, having more information to make decisions, uh, as a skeptic, I'm in favor of people having more information to make their decisions. Sure, sure. Well, I don't think eugenics was about elective. But eugenics was nothing about electives. <laughs> and and it's, it's still not in many forms. It's not, would you like to elect to have this? It's, everyone needs to have this. I, I would everyone needs to have at least one eugenics law that you support. Okay, what's that? Brothers and sisters should not breed. <laughs> it's against the law in our society for brothers and sisters to have children together. Or to marry, I should say, to marry, in view of copulation and parenthood. Uh, that's against the law in our society. In, every, in 50 states in the Union, even Arkansas, that's against the law. <laughs> uh, are you in favor of keeping those laws in the books? Brothers and sisters not, not having children? What if they're half siblings? Because that's a eugenic law, isn't it? Well, I mean, that, that was put in place prior to the eugenics movement. I mean, in terms of an idea about these strictures against interbreeding that closely. But I mean, is there any non-eugenic actual justification for that law? Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moral disgust that you see cross-culturally yeah, uh, in that's various just disgust. People have so. that towards buckery. I mean, sodomy. Whatever, whatever the correct term is for. <laughs> I'm going to bleep that out. I think, I think buggery is the correct term if you're in England. Okay. Uh, so. I mean, moral disgust doesn't count for anything, does it? It's just disgust. I mean, many of our laws are based on moral disgust. So. Oh, okay, but you're a voter. Let's say we have this as a plebiscite. We're going we're gonna to either strike this law from the books and let brothers and sisters get it on, or get married, have children, or we're going to leave it on the books and say, you know, brothers and sisters, no, no. Don't do that, guys. Stop it, Damien. He just doesn't want to be called a eugenicist. It's a eugenic law! He doesn't want to be called a eugenicist. I'm just saying that, <laughs> I'm just saying that at some level, our society retains eugenist policies. Well, I would say that that sort of a law is actually not a eugenics law because it's not saying, here's a specific kind of individual that we don't want having children. It's saying, here's... Two individuals that, if they interbreed, are very likely to have some pretty messed up kids. <laughs> but the eugenics and the idea behind eugenics is is not there's going to be problems from this mating. It's that these two people are of a certain kind of person, like siblings, for example, like feeble-minded, lower-class criminals. 
for minorities. Okay, so the eugenics movement is about uh, sort of a, a broad societal, not so much optional program to screen out the lower classes. It's about directed breeding mm-hmm. is basically what it's about. And it's about I, the person in power, am choosing the direction of this breeding. It's not elective. It's not, hey, I want to check and see if, if I have these certain kinds of genes that are very likely to interact with my uh, you know, mating partner's genes and cause this kind of problem. Mm-hmm. It's not that, uh, which is more of things like you go to see genetic counselors for. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, you, you're of a particular type of person, you can't breed. Uh, we're going to forcibly sterilize you, for example, uh, which happened enormous amounts here in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. thanks to laws that were in large part derived from quote-unquote evidence in things like psychology studies. Uh, and anthropology. And anthropology, uh, very much so in anthropology, which is actually where it started. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's, this, let's, this... All, let's take it off the statisticians <laughs> and the psychologists. <laughs> And put it all on the anthropology. Well, it really did. I mean, if if you look historically, uh, this is where scientific sexism and racism starts, is in anthropology. And then it moves into psychology (laughs) and statistics and psychometric measurements. But you know who... Statistics to back up this whole movement. They're they're that evil. (laughs) Do you know who the father of American anthropology is, though? Franz Boas, exactly. He was one of the major people who helped shift that idea back away. So we can so. just forget about the other history. There's so other reasons to be upset about Boas. <laughs> there are. Of course there are. That, right? but he, <laughs> make, he makes lovely stereo equipment. Though, so. <sighs> uh, in, your, in the beginning of your book, I think you did a great job of um, explaining the history of race and the idea of race. Could you... Uh, you expound that a little? Sure. Oh, so, yes, so um, people today, when you think race, they tend to think of something related to the color of your skin. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I look at this person, oh, that's, that's someone of African descent, that's someone of Asian descent, that's uh, a Caucasian. Even if you've never seen the Caucasus Mountains or have any idea <laughs> that those even exist. Uh, so we tend to, to associate skin color with race today. And we think that this is a very important trait. Right, and we divide people up by that. You're you're African American, right? You're white. You're Hispanic. You're Native. Whatever it happens to be, and this is a fairly new conception of race, and really only dates back about 300 years or so, which is shocking, honestly. Yeah, I mean, pe- people have no idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're like, no, no, this has always been. No, actually, if you travel back to ancient Greece via your DeLorean. What you'll see is that race, as we kind of understand it, a division of people, is based not on skin color, but on social and cultural aspects. It's based on uh, who do you worship and what sort of things do you observe? How do you trim your hair, right? Do you have a beard or not? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not based on things like skin color. It's based purely on social and cultural ideas. Do you follow my social and cultural ideas? Then you're of the same race as I am. So they were thinking more something like ethnicity or culture, not something like our modern idea of race. Nothing at all like our modern sort of conception of race. Um, and like I said, that really only stems from like the late 1700s that we start having people dividing race into these kind of skin color issues. Uh, and it was not that beforehand. Uh, you would talk about kinds of people, uh, but even that's fairly young, you know, maybe 500 years old. And so 
when you go back to uh, ancient Greece and Rome, it's much more of a, a cultural aspect. And one of the interesting things that sort of contributed to that is Christianity and the rise of Christianity, uh, where you have these, these stories being told about we all descend from the exact same person, right? Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. and then Noah and his descendants, right? And, well, if it's only a few thousand years ago, then, you know, why have we got all these different colored people? Oh, because one of Noah's sons was cursed, right? And he was cursed with black skin, and he was cursed with lesser abilities, and all of a sudden, oh, well, you know what? I'm Christian and I'm white. Look at those black-skinned people. They must obviously be from the inferior stock, from Ham and his descendants. And poor so he, Ham. He got a full eyeful. Man, and poor Ham, yeah. He really got short into the stick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, short into the stick. There. Poor guy had to see his dad's balls hang out. <laughs> <Yeah>. Drunkenly. <laughs> Drunkenly. Yeah. Drunken balls are the worst kind, I think. So. Absolutely. Speaking of which, do you have any more? I do. <laughs> right. So, Damien, two. Three. Three. Um, we see this idea of, of race really being a heavily influenced by Christianity uh-huh. uh, movement. And so we divide upper and lower races because, well, the light-skinned people were not Ham's descendants. And uh-huh. so they didn't get cursed by God. That's why they have all this wealth. That's right. And that's why I have, you know, the money and the power. And it's obvious, you know, that I'm more civilized, whatever that happens to mean in this particular context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we see is we see this, this idea of race as a you know, skin color or a biological construct really starting to rise with Christianity. And then it really gets a giant boost through biological theories that start to become very prominent, including things like our dear friend Charles Darwin. <laughs> and his cousin. And his, uh, his cousin Francis, really. He took it, took it way too far. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever have that troll F. Galton on your blog? Yes. Yes, I did. That's yes. who he's named after. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, if you, if you choose Freaky. for your moniker a, uh, a person who... <laughs> Who started you eugenics? <laughs> eh, you might not be a, a good yeah. person to hang out with. Yeah, you might not. <laughs> Shout out to F. Galton if you're listening. <laughs> Which you're not. Okay, so the thing about race, um, we're still going to have these conversations about race in America all the time. We're going to talk about affirmative action programs. We're going to talk about uh, all kind. Like every, I watch Melissa Harris Perry every Sunday. Is it Sunday? Mm-hmm. And there's always some discussion about race in America. Well, what are we supposed to mean by that now? Now that we have an informed scientific view of what what race isn't. Well, race is a social construct. Yeah, but so is murder. <laughs> Everything's a fucking social construct. <laughs> it's true. It doesn't make it not important. Right. Uh, I mean, most of the things that we value greatly are social constructs. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that. Because what you have too often is you have people viewing race as some sort of... Uh, innate biological destiny and it's not Um, I mean we see that if you look at for example modern studies on intelligence and um, different kinds of races the ones that are well conducted anyway uh, once you start controlling for socioeconomic status once you start controlling for education once you start controlling for 
the amount of money that's been put into schools, you start seeing these differences in quote-unquote intelligence uh, disappearing pretty rapidly. And so what we have today is we, we don't have, well, you're this way because you're black and your skin has this much melanin in it. Um, it's, well, you're black, you're white, that doesn't really matter. What matters are the other sort of things that come with your skin color. And a lot of that is more social issues, not environmental issues, more so than what, for example, most people in this book thought, which is that all of this is biologically determined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, most of the people who were doing this kind of what we call race psychology in the first half of the 20th century, they were very much, okay, you're this way because you are black. Oh, yeah. You're this, this way this because you are almost you like 100% her- hereditary. Hereditary. Yeah. Um, just exclusively hereditary. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing that matters. And so when you see, and this is one of the reasons why we reprinted uh, original articles in the book, so that you can actually see, here's how they conducted these studies. And here's the conclusions they drew. Do those match up? You know, Do these conclusions follow? Mm-hmm. And in most cases, no, because A, for example, your sample is terrible. B, <laughs> yeah. your results and methodology are, are you know, laughable in many cases. Uh, C, well, you already picked out what you wanted to have happen, happen anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then D, well, you just, you know, even if you don't get what you want to have happen, you explain it away. Now, I'm only halfway through the book so far, which is impressive because you gave me a review copy yesterday. That's true. That is very Last impressive, night. actually. Last night, <laughs> yeah. But I, I would like to ask, what would you say is the article, in that, in, of all the reprinted articles, which one's the least bad? Which one is, well, is, is the most sound comes to the best conclusions, has the best methodology. So we, we actually, um, we did a little bit of a switcheroo. So we didn't just choose the most horrible articles that we could. Cool. Which, if you start reading, you might think that I'm lying to you. <laughs> the first <laughs> the first start of the book, I was like, this pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what, you, what we did is we, we chose ones that, from the same time period, ones that were well done and ones that were not very well done so that uh, our readers could use the methodology that we outline and use the exercises that we give them to help pick those apart and to help see, okay, here's stuff that actually was well done and here's what it showed uh, versus, oh, here's things that were not well done. You don't want to tell me which one's well done. You don't uh, want to give it away. I don't want to give away the secrets. I mean, there was, there was on, one me... woman in particular who published an article which I thought was about 100 years ahead of its time in terms of saying, hey, you know, it turns out that women and men aren't that different intellectually. And we looked at this problem pretty hard, and every one of you who keeps saying women are inherently inferior, you guys are all wrong. Yeah. Women are just better in school in most subjects, <laughs> as far as we can tell, and they're not. And I was like, holy crap, it was like reading uh, Hannah Rosen. Uh, Hannah Rosen, yeah, exactly. From 2013, <laughs> only it was from 1914. Wow. And I think that was probably Wooly. In one of her articles that we reprinted, it was, um, and and that's why we did that to show that look these, ev- even with what you would call quote unquote primitive stats and more quote unquote primitive methodology compared to what we do today, if you set the research up in a methodologically rigorous way, you get the same results you do today, mm-hmm. which is that for example, there's not a lot of cognitive differences between males and females. Um, and if they are, well, they're very small. And what we've seen over the last century, anyway, is that, well, they've been decreasing as males and females have. I wouldn't actually more. expect a lot of cognitive differences between males and females. You would Because, the, well, I mean, it just doesn't seem to me that they're 
there's a good evolutionary reason for there to be a lot of cognitive differences, except except in the in the one area of sexual strategy, mate selection. In that one area, I would expect distinct differences because women are... Which is an, a very important aspect of our lives. Well, I mean, not my life. I'm, I'm set. I've got all the children I am done. It was. I'm about to get this thing tied off. But yeah, it's important for, you know, humans in general. It really matters. Yeah. I would expect differences in, 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 in mate selection strategies just on account of the, the massive differential investment between males and females. But yeah. I wouldn't expect differences in general cognitive abilities. Yeah, or memory or reasoning tasks or things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but if you were 100 years ago, Damon, you would not be saying the same thing in all likelihood. No, no, no. Um, you'd be saying, of course women are inferior, right? Of course blacks are inferior. 100 years ago, I'd be uh, a slave just for being that black. That's true. You'd have, you'd have <laughs> a small amount of black blood, as they say. Enslaved so. by now. Yeah, interestingly enough, the whole blood concept also comes in large part from Christianity. Right. Uh, we're talking about mixed blood and half-bloods and things like that because it's the blood of Ham that's flowing throughout the generations causing the blood. Yeah, so anyway, thanks, uh, Jesus. <laughs> thanks again, so, Bible. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what we see in large part uh, is we see people who are conducting studies that want to show, or conducting studies in such a way that they show what they want to show rather than what they actually do show. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we included this mixture of articles. We included some point-counterpoint articles where there was a direct rebuttal from someone else to that particular article. Uh, we included ones that were methodologically well done. We included ones that were methodologically very poorly done. We included some non-empirical studies, um, just sort of opinion pieces, uh, so that you could see kind of the the breadth of what was going on at this time, uh, and be able to critique it, look at it, learn from that. I would say this was shockingly bad, but I've read the first issue of The Lancet. <laughs> oh, yes. you have. Huh? After you read that, nothing can, <laughs> nothing can shock you after that. See what the crime yeah. about this is that science is supposed to uh, get you away from looking at anecdotal evidence. Right, not looking at your neighbor and seeing that they're poor and they also happen to be black, and obviously expanding, extrapolating that and saying that you know that must mean something about their race and about who they are. Science is supposed to uh, go beyond that cherry picking, sure, and help you you know come out of that that horrible way of thinking. And in fact, they use science, and it's might as well be anecdotal because all they're doing is getting the exact results that they wanted to have. Or, if they don't get the results they want to have, they still spin the results yeah. in a way that makes them feel superior. Oh, yeah, like the one with the Indians have a fast reaction time. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God, that was yeah. <laughs> yeah. fascinating. Well, we're going to find some way to make this work for the white people. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that's one of the, I mean, there's so many examples of that where... Um, and what, what Damien was referring to is actually one of the first studies on quote-unquote racial differences uh, yeah. by a guy named Bach in 1895 who we reprinted the full thing in the book. And he looked at whites, Indians, and blacks and had a total of like 30, 35 folks in the study. What is that? I don't know the terminology back then. Were those Native Americans or were those subcontinent? Uh, those were Native Americans, yeah. Oh, that's how I was going to ask. Yeah. So his people. And, and <laughs> they, he hypothesized, you know, <laughs> like, oh, well... Um, 
the more savage, quote unquote, someone is, and the closer, the further from civilization that someone is, the faster their reaction times will be. Because, you know, the modern white man doesn't need to react to things in his environment. They're pushing pencils. That's right. Hey, I'm just, <laughs> I'm in a factory or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so what he did was he, he found that, you know, he hypothesized, okay, well, the whites would have the lowest, and then the Indians would have the second lowest, and then blacks would have the highest, the quickest reaction times, because they're the least civilized, right? They're the most savage. And he found, oh, no. Well, it turns out the, the blacks and the whites have almost equal reaction times. Blacks are slightly faster, but if we looked at, for example, a uh, statistical difference today, we right, yeah. no, there's no <laughs> statistical difference. Yeah. And then the Indian uh, group had by far the fastest reaction time. And so That's instead right. of saying, well, my hypothesis was wrong. Yeah, Jim Archery, man. So instead of saying, oh, my hypothesis was wrong, you know, he said, well, my hypothesis is right. Still, it's just that slavery made the blacks slower. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Really? Like, that's your argument? It is a now? very demotivational message. So. <laughs> yeah. As far as, like, team building, getting people on. Right. I mean, I, I can't. Not really. so much. Yeah. I mean, I don't much love my job as it is, but I love the part that they pay me. So. And you get to go home. Yeah. Like, yeah, it gives me a certain amount of motivation to do well. Yeah. I get paid, I get to go home. Yeah. I can't imagine how much of a slouch I would be otherwise. Yeah, a very big one apparently. Yeah. I mean, Unless you got you know beaten for it on a yeah, daily basis. Because I'm Puerto Rican, as you know, they are congenitally lazy. It's been said. I think that was in one of the studies, actually. That, we, that actually is in the bell curve. Yeah. That's in that's in the Nineteen ninety-four master tome. That's in yeah. We do seriously, but seriously, Puerto Ricans do terrible in that book. We are the greatest <laughs> really? group of people. Oh, on God. I have it on my shelf. We're like blowing the curve down. It's almost like we don't know English that well. <laughs> I mean, if you guys would just get with the program and know habla it's espanol like anymore. It's almost like we're in a language we don't know that well. Yeah. You get the sense that that's happening. Yeah. It's almost as if we're using these instruments that were normed on people not like us at all. Mm -hmm. And we're doing poorly on them. God, there's an awesome line in your book and I have it on my iPad, which is, it's me. 